Father, we are grateful for the mercy and forgiveness that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We are reminded of this, this truth and this reality in our world by these readings this morning. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit upon us to hear your word, not only read, but preached. May it take root and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray that you'd pour out your spirit upon me, for I need your spirit to speak your word. We lift this all up to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week, Ben drew attention to the fact that we live within the most antagonistic, emotionally heated, and deeply divided times in American history. A time in which people, neighbors, family, friends, co-workers, are divided and dividing over just about anything. And nothing captures this reality maybe more poignantly than those bumper stickers. House divided. Duke UNC. You know the ones I'm talking about? House divided. University of Florida, University of Georgia. That's kind of what it is and where I'm coming from. House divided. We could put any issue there. Republican, Democrat, politics. White bread, wheat bread. You know, it's a house divided. We live in a house divided. We live in a society marked by deep divisions. This is no surprise to any one of us here this morning. And the society of division has given rise to what is being called of late a cancel culture. How depressing. <laughs> Russ Douthit in his New York Times opinion column defines it in this way. Cancellation, properly understood, refers to an attack on someone's employment and reputation by a determined collective of critics based on an opinion or an action that is alleged to be disgraceful and disqualifying. Cancellation is a way of engaging in disagreement, right? the division that we live within. It is a way of engaging with disagreement or division that seeks to use one's cultural power or leverage to stamp out differing opinions. And we need to ask ourselves, as members of this society, what does cancel culture bear witness to? What story does it tell? At the heart of this phenomenon, whether employed on the left or the right or the center, it does not matter, stands a deep contempt. A deep contempt for those who disagree with me and my group. And there's an overestimation of my own self and my own group. See, cancel culture bears witness to me, yeah. my way. Right? It embodies my way or the highway kind of thinking. <laughs> my way or the highway kind of living. It tells a story that finds its center in me. In me. It bears witness to humans attempting to create culture in their own image. And when humans attempt to create culture in their own image, they inevitably rely upon a single tool variously applied. Power, coercion, force, right? Because when I don't convince someone of my way, 
I need to make them see it my way. Praise be to God. This is not the reality that I see here. In the last two months since Ash and I have been here, I have not sensed a cancel culture at Christchurch. And we can be thankful for that because unfortunately that's not the case everywhere. That's not the case in every church. To the detriment and to the shame of the church, that's not the case. This divided society marked by a growing cancel culture makes up the air we breathe in here and now. And as a result, we certainly feel the tug. Ben mentioned this last week when he was talking in his sermon. We feel that tug drawing us into this distorted culture. We feel the tug to respond to others we disagree with through cancellation, through enforcing ourselves upon them and our thoughts, our opinions. And if we do not have the cultural power or leverage to cancel someone, we end up despising them. Right? Remember, the heart of cancel culture is a deep contempt. We end up despising people. Or we end up judging people. Two sides of the same coin. The impulse to cancel those who disagree with us, the temptation to despise or judge them is not new or unique to our time or our place. Every culture, <laughs> every culture is tempted to this, and we see it evidenced everywhere. We heard the, present, uh, the presence of this impulse, this temptation within the church, in both of our passages, both in the Gospel of Matthew and in Romans. We hear that temptation. Even in Leviticus, you can, you can hear those commands, safeguarding, seeking to safeguard the community from that temptation. Don't cancel others out. Don't cancel the poor out. Leave a measure of your field for them. In Matthew 18, Peter asked, How often do I need to forgive a brother who sins against me? How often, Jesus? Is seven times enough? And in essence, Peter's responding to what Jesus has just said. And Peter's just said in the context, Look, if, if a brother sins against you, go to them, tell them their fault. And if they listen to you, if they admit their fault... Forgive them, and your relationship will be restored. You'll, have, you'll win your brother. You will have a restored relationship. Reconciliation will be there. And of course, Peter, as the outspoken mouthpiece of the disciples, is like, well, that sounds good, Jesus. I, I get you. I, I want to do that. But let's just run a scenario past you real quick. Let's say I do that. Let's say my brother sins against me again. I go to him again. I tell him his fault again. He confesses his fault to me again in his apology. I forgive him again. And our relationship is, a, is restored again. And Jesus, let's just say this happens again and again and again. Seven times enough? When, Jesus, when does forgiveness end and cancellation begin? Right? When's the end? What's the limit to forgiveness? Is it at seven times? I feel like that's pretty, it's pretty gracious. In Romans 14, Paul confronts division within the church over matters of opinion. Not matters essential to the faith. Matters of opinion, debatable matters concerning food and holidays or sacred days. And folks in the church of Rome appear to have split into two groups. Vegetarians and meat lovers, right? 
Herbivores and carnivores. I don't know about you, but I know which side I want to be in, right? They're split into two groups. And the division ran so deep that these groups within the church were refusing to eat with one another. Can you imagine the animosity that stops you from even sitting across the table from someone who you claim to be a brother and sister with in Christ, that you have been renewed and forgiven, and say, I'm not going to sit at a table with you. In the church, Paul's confronting this. They were refusing each other table fellowship. And in doing so, they were canceling each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, despising one another. You know what despising is, right? It's holding someone in such contempt that you believe that they are of little or no worth. That's what the word despise means. That you believe someone to be of little or no worth. And the other group was condemning them, judging them. And what did Paul say in Romans 8 to this church? What is there no more in Christ Jesus? There is no more condemnation. Church, the way we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ matters deeply because it reflects our true allegiance. It reflects the dominant story that we are allowing to shape and form us or malform us. And so we need to ask ourselves, what am I bearing witness to in the way I think of? Because our passages go to the heart of the matter. Jesus says, if you don't forgive someone from your heart, forgive your brother from your heart. Be careful. Judgment awaits you. What am I bearing witness to in the way I think of, speak about, or treat my brother or my sister in Christ? What story am I living out in the way that I think about and speak about and treat my kinfolk in Christ? And know that we are kin. The waters of baptism are thicker than blood. We have been united together in Christ, and it's a profound reality and truth to visions in our world are overcome in Christ. May we live that out. And I know that no one here wants, to, wants our treatment to bear witness to a cancel culture. I know that, right? I trust that's true. I know that no one here wants the story that we bear witness to to be that story. We don't want to bear witness to a story of, of myself, of me. I know we desire in our treatment of one another to bear witness to a better story. To bear witness to a truer story. I know we want to live out that true story of God's kingdom. Revealed to us in the loving action of our triune God. That's the story we want to live out. I know that. Our scripture lessons from the Gospel of Matthew and from Paul's letter to the Romans, one, provide us a picture of that better, of that truer story of God's kingdom. And two, they also reveal a truth that is foundational to our living this better, truer story out in our lives. First, our scripture lessons reveal that at the center of the good news story of God's kingdom stands the triune God. Stands the triune God. Not me. Not you. 
Are we glad for that? At the center of the good news story of God's kingdom stands the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God extends to us limitless, undeserved forgiveness and divine welcome. This God extends to us limitless and undeserved forgiveness and divine welcome. Peter's question in our gospel reading, how often will I forgive my brother who sins against me? How often do I need to do that, Lord? Presupposes, that question presupposes that there is a limit. There is a limit to God's forgiveness. And as a result, there must be a limit to the forgiveness I need to extend to my brother or my sister. We're not even talking about how we relate to people outside the church yet. We're just talking about how we relate to people inside the church. There's got to be a limit, right, Jesus? They, for, they sinned against me. How long, oh Lord, do I bear with them? And Jesus responds to Peter's question and this presupposition with the parable of the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant that you heard read this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus tells in this a better and a truer story than the one that malformed Peter's understanding of forgiveness. We might even ask at some point, what was shaping Peter to think that there was a limit to God? What's shaping us to think that there's a limit to God's forgiveness? The parable employs hyperbole, you know, exaggerated statements, over-the-top kind of statements to communicate two realities of the gospel story, two truths of the gospel story. The first reality, we as humans owe a sin debt beyond our imagining and we do not possess the ability to repay it. We owe God a debt far beyond what we are able to pay. Reality number one of the good news. It doesn't sound so good, right? <laughs> Reality number one of the good news. We owe a debt. The servant owed the king 10,000 talents. I mean, that sound like a lot to us. But in Greek, the word 10,000 is the highest number. Right? The highest number. And the talent is the largest measure of currency. The largest denomination. It's like us saying that this debt was a zillion $100 bills. You know, the $100 bill is the largest denomination we have in circulation. And I don't even know if a zillion is a real number, but it sounds like it's more than a trillion. So a zillion $100 bills. That's the size of this debt. It's beyond imagination how big this debt is. It's not realistic that this servant could ever pay this debt to his master, to his king. And Jesus wants us to read ourselves in the place of this servant. He wants Peter in the gospel to cast himself in the role of this servant. Peter, in essence, Jesus is saying there is a debt so large and you lack, you lack the ability to pay it back. There's a debt so large you owe to God. Disciple here this morning, Christian, you owe a debt to God because of your sin. It is far too large for you to pay back. You don't have the ability. Jeff Bezos can't make a payment on this debt. The servant's plea that the king be patient and give him more time to pay off the debt would be laughable, right? It'd be, I think we might chuckle a little bit if we heard it, if it was not so tragic. Just give me a little time. I can pay this off. 
The debt the servant owes the king is so large it presses the boundary of our imaginations to conceive it. There is no way this servant can pay this debt. The gospel that Jesus proclaims tells us the truth about ourselves. It clearly portrays the situation we are in, in relationship to God. We cannot possibly do enough good in this world to balance the account with God. We are humanly unable to pay the debt. And yet, and yet, there is a second reality of the gospel. And this is where we all say, Amen. (laughs) There is a second reality reality to the good news of God. And this is it. God freely gives to us his boundless, without limit grace when we turn to him in repentance, pleading in faith for his mercy. Boundless grace. Boundless, limitless, undeserved forgiveness. And the servant in the story gets immeasurably more than he asked. He just asked for some time. Be patient. I'll, I'll I'll get it paid back to you. Be patient. Instead of receiving more time, the king completely forgives the debt. Total remission of debt. The reality that we see here is that each one of us owes a deep sin sin debt we are unable to pay. That reality meets the second reality that the gospel proclaims the deep forgiveness of God of all indebtedness by a boundlessly gracious God. The two realities collide, and guess which one wins? Aren't we glad that the good news that God's forgiveness trumps sin every time? It wins. This is the good news of the story of God's kingdom in the action of the triune God on our behalf. The God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son to pay the deep sin debt we could not. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, willingly became man. Our context has him as a man walking to Jerusalem to suffer rejection and to be killed on a cross on our behalf to pay this debt. And that through repentance, we receive from God the Father not only limitless forgiveness, but more than that, we receive his life-giving spirit, the spirit of God. And we hear the divine welcome of sons and daughters of the king. Though this parable of the forgiving king, or through this parable of the forgiving king, Jesus teaches us to be amazed by grace, to be captivated by the good news of God and his kingdom, and to be utterly grateful to our gracious God. And if that's not enough to get you kind of fired up a little bit on a Sunday morning, I don't know if anybody is, if you've had coffee yet, you are the 11 a.m. service, so you've had some time, right? If that story, the parable, the reality of the good news of God's kingdom doesn't get you fired up, Romans 14 ought to add to it a little bit and maybe spark a little fire in us. Holy Spirit, come. Paul addresses the division in Romans 14 within the church that has resulted in folks, as we spoke earlier, despising and judging one another on matters disputable. In essence, for Paul, to judge or despise a fellow believer is to impose a valuation of worth utterly contrary to that person's evaluation by God. We're talking about the church, people whom God has welcomed as sons and daughters. In that welcome of sons and daughters, it bestows upon each person a worth and a value. And when we despise and when we judge others in the church, we're saying, we're in a bad situation when we do that, 
Because we're going contrary to God's value and God's worth of the other person. Listen to Romans 14.3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed her. And in 15.7, at the end of this passage, Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Paul uses the language of welcome. That is the language of hospitality. To insist that God has welcomed repentant sinners into his home, into his household, into his family. Through this divine welcome, God attributes worth to those who turn to him. A worth that no human valuation can overturn. And no human valuation can overturn it because the worth that God freely gives to each of us who turn to him is based on the value of his son's life who's been given up for us in his death. God welcomes us. Isn't that good news? The king, the creator of heaven and earth, welcomes us as sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus. That is good news. And you know what? If you're doubting this morning, if you're still wrestling in your heart with Christianity, take Pascal's wager. Act like it's true for a moment. Don't you want it to be true? Do you want cancel culture to be true? Who wants that? However it's, in, however it's practiced, whoever's practicing it, who wants that? Don't you want the kingdom? Don't you want a God who extends to you welcome? The true story of God's forgiveness and welcome given to us on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is a better story. It is a more desirable story than the ones on tap in our society that produce cancel culture or any other culture contrary to the gospel. Yet our lessons this morning do not simply tell us this good news story. They don't leave us there. Each passage passage expects us then, in return, to be people who forgive and welcome. Each passage acknowledges that this story has authority over our lives. We have to live the story out. There are consequences, tangible consequences, to receiving the forgiveness of God. There are tangible consequences to hearing the voice of God say, Welcome! My child. Our scripture lessons present this foundational truth. If we are to be faithful, to embody, that is to live out, and extend divine forgiveness and hospitality to others, let's start in the church. I think we're doing that, but let's hammer that down before we move out. If we are to faithfully embody and extend divine forgiveness and hospitality to others, then all our lives all of our lives, every aspect of them must be deeply rooted in the gospel. And they must be deeply nourished in the gospel. In this good news story of God's kingdom revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Though God freely gives us complete forgiveness and extends to us divine welcome as family, a part 
But listen to this. Apart from anything we have to offer, we got nothing to bring to the table. He gives us forgiveness and welcome apart from anything we have to offer. Yet he does expect, and he even requires, that those who have received his forgiveness and his welcome will likewise forgive and welcome others. Especially those who are, whom we are bound together with in Christ. The Christian life is based on and responsive to the action of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is to say that there is a cause and effect relationship at work here. There is a cause and effect to God's forgiveness creates human forgiveness. Right? See the cause and effect relationship. God's forgiveness creates human forgiveness. And this cause and effect relationship stands at the heart of the Christian life. And it is revealed so clearly in the scriptures, not just in these two passages, but elsewhere by the word as. The simple word as. Look at Matthew 18, 32 and 33. Then his master summoned him. We're in the story. We're in the parable. Summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? What's the next word? As. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Cause and effect. Jesus expects that his disciples will forgive each other as God has forgiven them limitlessly. Do you see the cause and effect? God's forgiveness is expected to create human forgiveness. God has forgiven you, therefore you forgive your brother or your sister in Christ. Not only that, listen to Paul in Romans 15. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. God welcomes, we welcome. If God's forgiveness and welcome creates human forgiveness and welcome, then our lives must be deeply rooted in and nourished by the gospel so that we can bear the fruit of God's forgiveness and welcome in our relationships with one another here at Christ Church and within our communities. And if we bear the fruit of God's forgiveness and welcome in forgiving and welcoming one another as God has forgiven and welcomed us, then we will collectively... This is a promise to us. We will collectively bear witness to the good news of God's kingdom here in Winston-Salem. If our collective life together, if our collective life together is to mark, is to be marked by the forgiveness and welcome of God, then our lives here at Christ Church will reflect the light of God's kingdom in the midst of a dark culture. It will reflect the light of God's kingdom, the darkness of this present age that is marked by cancellation rather than divine forgiveness. It will shine light in a dark world that is marked by shame rather than the worth given to us in Jesus Christ. Yet it is impossible, isn't it? It is impossible to forgive and welcome others as God forgives and welcomes us if we're only trying to imitate God on the outside. It's impossible. You can keep that up for a little while, but people start to wear on you, don't they? <laughs> people start to wear on you. If we're only trying to do this on the outside, just trying to forgive here and there an imitation of God, that's going to break down. There has to be. There has to be a vital participation coming from the depths of our hearts 
welling up within us. This is something that has to go deep down into our very beings, our very souls. There has to be this vital participation in the depths of our hearts in the holiness and the mercy and the love of God that issues forth in forgiveness and hospitality and welcome. And only the Spirit of God by whom we live can do this in our lives. We can't do it. We, we, we have nothing to offer. We have gifts that God has given us, but who gives us our gifts? The Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit that makes this reality present in our lives. By means. How does the Spirit do this? By means of prayerful Christian worship and word and sacrament. That's why Christ commands us to gather every week. For it is here in the word of God that we are deeply rooted in the gospel. And it is here at the table that we are deeply nourished by the gospel of God. And we need to ask ourselves this morning as we come here to to the throne room of God. Do you believe that? That in our worship behind the cross, following Christ, we enter each week into the very throne room of God. And we join our voices with angels in praise of the God who offers us thanksgiving and welcome. And we need to ask ourselves when we come into God's presence, how have I been doing? Have I been withholding forgiveness? Have I been despising or judging someone in my heart or maybe even in my actions over debatable matters? I want to tell you this morning, if you have, and that's the tug for all of us, you're in the right place. This is the place to be for sinners. In a moment, we're going to pray to God and confess our sins in thought, word, and deed. I pray that you review your week and ask God to forgive you where you're falling short. And then we're going to hear and receive the limitless forgiveness of God pronounced over us in the absolution. Right? You know, to absolve is to declare free from guilt. Free from guilt, forgiven. And then as forgiven folk, we're going to come to the table of God and we're going to hear God's welcome. 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 And God is going to offer to us his good gifts of his son to nourish us, to give us strength so that we might go back out into the world with forgiveness and welcome and bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need this. We need to be rooted in the word and we need to be nourished by the body and blood of Christ. And with Paul, allow me to pronounce this over you. From Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, welcoming one another as Christ welcomed you, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. May God so do that in our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.